Good morning. It is hard, actually, to stand before you guys and the churches to share what God has laid on my heart. This is my first time, maybe standing before a crowd teaching the word of God. Since last year, that was the 18th June, when I came over here from Kenya. In Kenya, I've been teaching the church. In Kenya, I've been pastoring a church for the last 20 years. In Kenya, we have 42 tribes, and I come from western part of Kenya. Thereby, it is bordering Uganda on the western part, and the capital city of Kenya is Nairobi. So it is very far from my place just to navigate to Nairobi. I attend my theological training in Kenya Public Theological Seminary or college. I studied from 1994 through 1999. I graduated on 17th. That was a Saturday at exactly 1 p.m. And then 29th December of the same year, I got married to Caroline. It was a Wednesday. It was also at the same timing, like 1.30 p.m. when we were getting married in Kamkuiwa Baptist Church. It was the first wedding in that village. They had never witnessed a wedding. Ours was the first one. So coming over to U.S., to me, I count it as a privilege. It's not a right. Because I come from a very humble family whereby I cannot even make it on my own to come this far. But God has made it. So today, I was asked actually to share something with this class with Richard Koff. I know that this class, as he was asking me to share something, it was yesterday in the morning when I received the email. I told him, yes, I'll do that. And that's why I'm here. Before maybe we go far in our discussion this morning, I wanted just to let you know that from Kenya, as I've said, I come from a very humble background. In the Kenya, we have different tribes. And in Kenya, we have different religions. But mostly, the religion which is uh, becoming like a terrorist to Christians, they are Muslims. So, we are bordering on the eastern side. We border Somali, and on the northern part, we border. We are bordering with Ethiopia. On the western side, we are bordering with Uganda. On northwest, we border Sudan, and on the south, we are bordering with Tanzania. Now, on the coastal region, coming from Somali down to Mombasa, it is becoming like the catchment area of the Muslims. And the Muslims are becoming terrorists when it comes to faith. In fact, before we crossed over here, they had killed a lot of Christians on the coastal region, and the, the region lying between Somali and the Kenya. These people are coming from Somali. We normally call them Al-Shabaab. They are fighting for their freedom because when they, they, they crossed over to Kenya and they started killing people in the uh, eastern region, then our president, former president, who is Mwai Kibaki, or who was Mwai Kibaki, in fact, instructed the, the, the soldiers from Kenya and they went directly into Sudan, uh, Somalia where they were living. And then 
the Kenyan soldiers destroyed their territory, and uh, as a result, they were coming over to Kenya so as actually to see to either they are revenging. So every time on the coastal region of Kenya, it is not safe for Christians. So Christians are living maybe in fear. Others are living under um, trials. Others are living about just to maybe to say no to Christianity simply because that region is a region of terrorists. So when we talk about suffering and the trials, we can also count on those Kenyans who are living in the eastern region of Kenya, and they are also experiencing this from our fellow Muslims. It is very hard to navigate to the coastal region or eastern region, simply because you are a Christian. You are going to face it rough. So today, I want us actually to see from the book of Peter, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, if we will, but maybe time will not be on our side. We may take maybe a few verses. So today I'm just going to, our topic is Christians and the court's glory. Christians and the court's glory. In introduction, I may say this. Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Peter writes this book to the diaspora Jews or scattered Christians who were living out of Palestine. They were living in the Pondas, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and the Bithynia. It was the time when the church was undergoing great persecutions from the Roman Empire. Now, at this particular time, the emperor who was on the throne was Nero. That's 54 to 68 AD. Then after Nero came Vesipian, Vesipian, yes, Vesipian, that is 69 to 79. But when Peter was writing this letter to these scattered Christians who were living out of Palestine, they were undergoing great persecutions. So the apostle wrote the book to encourage the saints to stand firm in the true grace of God in the face of escalating persecutions and sufferings. They were facing these sufferings simply because the emperor Nero, in the year when he was on the throne, some scholars say that he started the fire on Rome, and the half of Rome caught panned, and then Nero shifted that to, the, to, the, to blame the Christians. And because he shifted to blame the Christians, then the Christians were persecuted in these areas where they, are, they were living. So apostle, the apostle Peter wrote the book to encourage the, the saints to stand firm in the true grace of God in the face of escalating persecution and sufferings. Again, Peter reminded them of their election and the hope of their heavenly inheritance. He was telling them, despite the fact that you are undergoing some persecutions, but remember, God has elected you. You are his people. He will never reject you. He, he was also encouraging them, or he was giving them the instruction of how to conduct themselves in a hostile world and appointing them to the examples of Jesus Christ, how Jesus Christ suffered. So he was telling them, yes, you are complaining about the sufferings, but look at your Lord Jesus Christ. He also suffered. Peter wanted his readers to live a victorious life in the midst of hostile conditions without abandoning their faith and hope by becoming Peter and lose their faith in Christ. He was just trying to encourage them that whatever is coming your way, please feel encouraged because you are not the only people who are undergoing such trials or sufferings. 
Even your Lord Jesus Christ went through them. So he was just encouraging them to stand the midst of hostile conditions. He explains this uh, sovereign uh, election for what it is, for it was a reality recognized and believed among the apostles and the church. No, it was a reality that these people have been elected. And he wanted to prove to them that it's not just out of me as an apostle Peter, but also other apostles knows that you are elected. And at the same time, they are not only apostles, but also the church affirms that you have been elected. In these verses, therefore, Peter highlights four pictures of a Christian and God's glory. So from chapter 1 of Peter, verses 1 through 12, Peter is giving us four pictures of how a Christian can actually, or, or in other words, I'm saying, in these verses, Peter highlights four pictures of how a Christian can relate to God's glory. So, Number A, it is Christians are upon for glory. That is verse 2 through verse 4. And then number P, Christians are kept for glory. That is verse 5. And then number C, Christians are being prepared for glory. That is verse 6 to 7. And then number D, Christians can enjoy the glory now. That is verse 8 through 12. Now, let Let's turn to First Peter. <coughs> first Peter. Let's, let us read the first five verses. And here the Bible reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect excess of dispersions in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God, the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfending, kept in heaven for you. Verse number five. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the first thing we want actually to discuss is see. Christians are upon for glory. That is verse 2 through verse 4. When we were born in the first place or in the first time, we were not born for glory. We read that from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. The Bible reads, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers, and the flower falls. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, in other words, I'm saying, <clears throat> in the first place we were born from our parents, we were not born for glory, because we were born under sin. So, because we were born under sin, then we were not born under uh, God's glory, so to speak. For when I talk about glory, I'm talking about a Christian with God's glory. So in the first place, when we were born with our parents, we were born in sin, and because of sin, then it was not an everlasting glory, but it was a glory which could fade away, as we have read from First Peter, verse 1, 24. You can also add, and read in the book of Isaiah, of chapter 40, verse 6. We were born under sin, and all flesh is like grass. It fades away. That was because we were born in sin of the first Adam, 
But the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, came and died on the cross for the remission of our sins and imputed in us his righteousness. So we were born in sin. Until the time we were born again and believed in Jesus Christ, he imputed his righteousness in us. So when he imputed his righteousness in us, then we were right with God. Uh, this righteousness makes us be accepted by God in his kingdom in order for us to understand that we were born for glory. Peter gives us two examples. Now, let us see verse 2. Verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is saying this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, I don't want actually to enter into sprinkling of blood because in the Old Testament times, if the covenant was made, then there was sprinkling of blood to, rect- uh, to rectify that uh, covenant or to abide that covenant. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, his blood has confirmed the new covenant. And as we believe in Jesus Christ, then we have been sanctified or sprinkled with his blood to make that covenant abide. And that's why Peter is saying, you guys... You have also been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has made this covenant firm. It's not just a covenant whereby it came today and tomorrow it's going to find. You know, it's an everlasting covenant. And that's why verse 2, Christians who are chosen by God. Let us read Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. The Bible reads, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has placed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places, even as he chose us in, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So in other words, I'm saying, you were chosen in Christ before even the foundation of the world. Before even you were born, you were chosen in Christ. God said his electing love or the nation of Israel and the same love he has used to choose the Christians. When you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 6, you can see how God elected the Israelites. And that the same, same love which God used to, to choose the Israelites for himself, he has also come in New Testament. Through uh, the same love, he has chosen the Christian to himself. So that's, that's to say, as God chose the Israelites, to himself, he has also chosen Christian to himself through same love. Because if he chose the Israelites with a different love, and then he has chosen the Christian with a different love, then we may say God is showing partiality. But because God does not show partiality, the same, same love he chose the Israelites in the Old Testament, he has also used it to choose the Christian for himself. So, God chose me in Christ. Christ died for me on the cross. The Holy Spirit convicted me of my sins and appointed me to believe in Jesus Christ. For that reason, therefore, I did nothing to be accepted by Jesus Christ. I did nothing. Everything started with God and ends with God. He chose me, but in Christ. If that's the case, you can see, you can read during your own free time, that is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Let us maybe visit Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may post. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even in your faith which you have, it was not enough. It, can, it could not make you to believe in Jesus Christ. If the, the saving faith you have comes from God himself, and he gave us that faith as a gift, so as to believe in Jesus Christ. So that's why I'm saying, I as a person, I was chosen by God in Christ. And Christ died for me on the cross, and the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sins and appointed me to believe in Jesus Christ. For that reason, I did nothing to be accepted by Christ. And that's to say, God the Father planned my salvation. God the Son bought my salvation. And God the Holy Spirit sealed my salvation in Christ himself. So if that's the case, then it is not coming from human perspective, but it comes to from God himself. So God chose us. Despite the fact that we are undergoing through trials, despite the fact that we, ha- we can experience sufferings, but we need to actually to recognize and realize that God chose us in Christ before even the foundation of the world. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us in Christ. When you want to read, you can read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. Now, that has been number, one, number A. Let us see number B. A Christian hope described. That is from verse number, verse number 3 to verse number, verse number 3 to verse number 4. 1 Peter. Verse 3. The Bible reads, Blessed be the, the God and the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, verse number three to verse number four, Peter is trying just to tell them, you are a Christian. Therefore, he's addressing a Christian hope. He's describing the Christian hope. It is a living hope because it is grounded in a living word of God. When you read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, the Bible says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So being born again, we are not born again by perishable seed. Now, which means we cannot, we cannot lose our salvation. If that is the implication. Because the Bible says we have been born not from imperishable seed. So once saved, always saved. Once a child, always a child. But that does not mean that we don't have a responsibility. We have a responsibility as a people. Working out our salvation with fear and trembling before him. Now, sometimes I normally say, position standing before God, we are righteous. But practical standing before God, sometimes that is where the problem comes. Practical standing before God, that's where the, uh, the problem comes. But position of standing, we are righteous because Jesus Christ died for us. And he made us, he imputed his righteousness in us. So we are righteous before God. But practical standing before God, that is your responsibility. And that's where we have a lot of question marks in our Christian life. It's a struggle. And if that's the struggle, this is what Peter is trying to tell us. That we have been born again 
not from perishable, but perishable seed. Through the resurrection of his son, the Holy Spirit uses the word to produce life in us. Because before we got saved, it's like we were dead. We were dead. And have, have that picture of somebody who is dead, a body. He doesn't have feelings. And that's how we were. We were dead in our sins. And then the Holy Spirit regenerated us. We came back to life. And that's why we are saying you are born again for glory. Because Jesus Christ has revived you, has, has made you come back to life, not just because of this life, but he's planning for something better. And that is eternal life. So the hope is inheritance in his glory. That's the hope a Christian is hoping for. It's the inheritance in his glory. Uh, you read during your own time. But this is Romans chapter 8, verse 17 through 18. That the inheritance is different from the earthly inheritance because it is incorruptible. Thus cannot be ruined. Now, you recall the story of the prodigal son? Prodigal son or prodigal son? Prodigal son. He went to his, to his dad, and his dad gave him the inheritance. He knew that maybe he has got everything, only to find after which everything has perished, and he came back. That is earthly inheritance. It will fade away. But our heavenly inheritance which a Christian is hoping for, is everlasting. Because it's, it's all generated by God himself, and all is kept by God himself. So, it's everlasting. The inheritance is called salvation. Now, let's read. Let's read Peter. First Peter, verse 5, and verse 9. Verse 5 reads, Who by God's power are being carried through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome. Now, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Now, the inheritance we are talking about is salvation. It's our salvation. Now, when does salvation begin? Salvation begins when you are still here on the world. Can somebody who, who has died be saved? No. The Bible does not say so. Salvation is to that person who is still alive. This for you and me. And if that's the, the case, then that is the, the, the inheritance we are hoping for as Christians. Let us see Verse number five is taking us to, to outline subtopic number two. Christians are kept for glory. Christians are kept for glory. We have just read this verse. So let me just explain. Our future homes in heaven are guarded and reserved. They cannot be canceled. Once saved, always saved. Unless you are not saved. And sometimes you cannot say, today I'm saved, and then I've, I've lost my salvation. That's not the Bible. The Bible says, we have been saved by an incorruptible seed, which cannot perish. So, once saved, always saved. And that's why we are saying our homes, our future homes in heaven, are cut and, uh, and uh, reserved they cannot be canceled. Christians are cutted, shielded, or kept by the power of God. Now, when we read, that's Romans 8, 28 through 39, you can see how the Christian is being protected by the power of God. But let us just read only verse 33. And at the end, Romans 8, 33. Let 
the Bible reads, Who shall bring any church against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is in the sitting for us. Who shall separate us from the love of, of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecutions, or famine, or, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep. To be. If you read through up to 39, let me just jump to 39. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. There's, not, there's, there's, there's nobody who is powerful than our God who can snatch us out of Jesus himself. There's nobody. There's nothing powerful who can snatch us from the hands of Jesus. Nothing. In fact, you talk of Satan. Satan was created. And he doesn't have any possession. He uses lies, actually, to endice God's people so that he can lie to them and make a kingdom through them. But Satan does not possess anything. So he's not powerful than our God. And as I started, I said, what is the glory? The glory is the sum total of who God is and what he does. And if that's the thing, then how can we divine our God? He's an awesome God. We lack even the words to describe our God. We lack even words to say who God is in our everyday lives. So if that's the implication, then we are saved then. We are in the right hands. Jesus Christ. Despite the fact that we are going through sufferings, despite the fact that we are going through trials, but that does not nullify the point that we are guarded by God himself. Because he knows what we are going through. He knows what we are going through. Now, believers have already been glorified. Now this, listen to this. Believers have already been glorified, but what awaits them is only the public revelation of this glory. It is, it is like we have already been glorified in Jesus Christ. But what is awaiting us is the public revelation of this glory. And the public revelation of this glory is the time when Jesus Christ will come to take the church home. That is the resurrection of our bodies. It will be changed into the glorified body. That's the only thing which is awaiting us. But at the same time, we are where Christ is, then our hearts are. So it's like we have been glorified in Christ. Though we are still living on this world, but God has done it. Has done it. And because he has done it, then we need to have confidence and hope in him. And we cannot have confidence and hope in him if we are doubting our spirituality. So, God did it. And we are safe in his hands. The trials will be there, but they cannot nullify the point that we are children of God. We are by the scriptures. Now, let us see the third thing from verse 6 to 7. Christians are being prepared for glory. Verse 6, that is First Peter, verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the test, tested, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than cold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Verses 6 and 7, Peter is trying just to encourage them. And he's telling them, you are being prepared for glory. Preparation. When I came over from Kenya, I didn't know that Pastor Shane is a coach of football. And before he could invite me to go and watch, he had prepared his team well, which means I don't know for how long, but he was preparing the team so as to go for the, for, for the game. Why was he preparing? He was preparing to give them the tactics, to give them the stamina when they are going to face their opponent so as to win. So Peter is trying to tell the Christian that you are being prepared for glory. And because you are being prepared for glory, it is not going to be easy. You are going to go through trials. You are going to go through sufferings. You are going to go through criticisms. But those cannot nullify the point of God preparing you for the glory. And this is what he's saying. All that happens to us is a preparatory for what God has for us in heaven. Name them. Trials, sufferings, grief, sickness, temptations. Name them. But those things are just a, a, a preparatory for what God has for us in heaven. Today, life is like a school in which God trains us for our future ministry in eternity. He's preparing us. And he cannot prepare us if we are not even facing these difficult moments in our lives. So Peter is telling them, you are facing those difficult moments in your lives, but know that that is a preparatory. You are being prepared. These trials are tools, as I've said, are tools and God's textbooks in school for Christian experience. Christians are surrounded by trials. The question stands, why trials? Number A, trials meet needs. Trials meet needs. They discipline us when we go astray. Let us read Psalms 119. Psalms 119, verse 67. Psalms 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now, because of what I've passed through, now I'm going to keep your word. So why trials? Number one, trials meet needs. God knows what we are going through. And those are the needs. Trials meets our, uh, meets our needs. Trials prepare us for spiritual growth. Now, this one, <laughs> I don't know. We have Pastor Shen here. He will help us. But I, I understand. The way I understand. Let, me, let us turn to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1. This is a time when Paul is going through difficult moments in his life. And as he's going in difficult moments in his life, in his life, I mean, we have things which are revolving around him. And you can see from just verse 1, chapter 12, you can see him mentioning about the thorn in the flesh. Now, people have also said that the thorn in the flesh, maybe Paul was, was sick, maybe was feeling stomachache. People have said such like words. But when you read through, 
I normally stick on the at the last of this verse. Uh, not at the last. It is verse verse eleven. No, verse verse nine and ten. When we read verse nine and ten, but he said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will post all the more gladly of my weakness." so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am contented with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For then I am weak, then I am strong. Now, the thorn in flesh, to me, I think <laughs> these were criticisms coming from people. And also, when you go back to chapter 10, 11, you can see that the false prophets were there. Maybe he's wrestling. He's wrestling with these people who are critiquing him, critiquing him about his leadership and also the false teachers who are there. So he is like wrestling with such like things. That's, to me, that is what we may say that is a thorn in flesh because he's, he's a leader and all these things are revolving around him. Now he's seeing that these are actually afflicting me. As a leader, and I don't, I don't think that this is talking about that Paul was maybe sick and he was feeling stomachache or whatever. Like when you come to Kenya, that is what they will tell you that maybe Paul was feeling stomachache, and because he was feeling stomachache, that's why it was a thorn in his flesh. But I don't think that is true. Yeah, I stand to be corrected, but I think <laughs> these are the hardships Paul was going through. These are the, 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 the persecutions Paul was going through. These are the calamities Paul was going through. So he's lamenting and saying, these are, are thought in my flesh. And he pleaded with God, but God said, no, my, my grace is what? Sufficient. You'll go on. You'll be criticized. You'll be persecuted. But you go on. When you are like that, it's when, to me, I see you are strong. Such like things. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time there. And, uh, and uh, something which we need to know that trials meet, meet needs. Number B, trials are varied or are different. We experience different trials leading to one goal. Though trials, but God's grace is sufficient to meet the needs of his people. Yes, we undergo trials, but God's grace is what? Sufficient. We meet our needs. God matches trials to our strength and our needs. He matches them. Why, why am I saying so? Because God controls trials. Trials are not easy. Trials produce grief or pain in our lives. So they are not easy when you are going through. I, I, at this particular time, when Peter is writing to these people, these people are going a rough road. They are suffering. So trials, trials produces grief and pains. So if the trials produce grief and pains, they are not easy. They are not easy. So we can only overcome if we recall the word of God in us. In my heart, I've kept your word that I may not sin against you. Is it time? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> now, we will expect, or we will actually, we should accept trials. We should accept trials. We should accept that trials brings with them difficult experiences in their life, and we should not put on a prayer front just to appear more spiritual, but accept the reality of trials in our lives. Sometimes we let us not just say, oh, everything is okay, everything is okay, when we are grieving inside. We should accept that trials are there. Why? We are living in a fallen world. You cannot pretend that everything is just okay. Like the other, in fact, when I was in Kenya, a certain pastor came to me and said, when I got saved, from the time I got saved, I have never even 
gone to hospital. Maybe I've never felt sick. I've never done this. To me, that is foolishness. We are living on a fallen world. Whether you like it or not, we'll undergo trials and sufferings. Because there's nowhere in the Bible whereby we have been given a mandate that we pray that God can remove trials from the world. No. But God has promised that when we go through those trials, he's there to safeguard us. And he's going to make us go through them. Because he knows. He's controlling them. Trials are controlled by God. They do not last forever. They are for a season. After learning this, uh, the lesson, God will not permit us to suffer one minute longer. The Lord keeps us in the finance of suffering until we reflect the glory and the beauty of Christ. Trials of life are there just to test our faith and prove its sincerity. Are you sincere in your faith? Let us observe the trials we are going through. Because if you are going through a trial, we will see it manifested in outside appearance. We will see it. And that's why we are saying trials of life are there just to test our faith and approve its sincerity. Now, lastly, because of time, it's verse 8 to 12. Christian can enjoy the glory now. I want just to mention it, and then we'll call it a day. Christians can enjoy the glory now. Christians can change suffering into glory today. Peter mentioned uh, four directions of how we can enjoy the glory now. Number one, in verse 8, he's saying, if we want to enjoy the glory now, then we should just love Christ. <laughs> verse 8, he's just saying, you, you love just Christ. Our love for Christ is based on our spiritual relationships, uh, spiritual relationship, and I wanted the word has taught us about him. So our relationship, our love, we relate to God because of the word. What have we been taught? And that whatever we have been taught should actually motivate us to have that closer relationship with Jesus Christ. Satan uses the trials to bring out the worst in our lives, but Christ uses trials to bring out the best in our lives. Now, the Holy Spirit has poured the love of God in our hearts when you read Romans 5.5. 5, and we need to return this love to him, e.g. in worship, prayer, praises, thanksgiving, and etc. Number B, apart from loving Christ, number B, trust Christ. How can you turn, how can Christian enjoy the glory now? We have said, love Christ. Number B, trust Christ. Because you cannot change anything. <laughs> Whatever is befailing you in your life, you cannot change them. You just trust Christ. He's in control. Just trust him. We need to surrender all to God and obey his word under all circumstances and the consequences. We need his word under all circumstances and the consequences. Love and faith go together equals to bright future. If we, we love God and we have faith, then this culminates to bright future because we are hoping that one day we are going to meet with Christ. So this will help us actually see to it that we have a very bright future because we have love and we have faith in him. Spend much of your time in God's word because if we spend a lot of time in the word, then we are going to be nourished. Our spiritual life is going to be nourished day and after, day after day. Number C, apart from trusting in Christ, number C, rejoice in Christ. Love Christ, trust Christ, rejoice in Christ. Rejoicing under circumstances is hard, but we can rejoice in them by fixing our, our hearts and mind on Jesus Christ. Fixing our heart and mind to him, who is the start and the finish of your faith. 
Fix your heart, fix your eyes to him. Don't fix your eyes and your heart to what you see, because what you see is temporal. <laughs> it's coming to pass. But fix your eyes, fix your heart to him, because he's the starter and the finisher of your faith. Rejoice in him. Under circumstances in the heart, but we can rejoice in fixing our hearts to Christ. Like Stephen in the Bible, when he was being stoned, what did he do? He looked up. Instead of looking like that, he looked up. And what did he see? Instead of seeing Jesus seated on the right hand of God, he saw him running one, standing. He fixed his eyes, the heavenly Father. We see other people in Daniel 3. Daniel 3, we see Meshach. We see Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. When they were being tortured, they said, no, we will stand. And they stood, their crowned. Finally, or lastly, rejoice from Christ. Love Christ, trust Christ, rejoice in Christ, but rejoice from Christ. Because you, you, you can be rejoicing, but you are not rejoicing from him, but you are rejoicing from other things. But when you rejoice from other things, those things, I told you, they will faint, fade. And if they are going to, to be ruined or fade away, then you are going just to, to remain with your, only yourself. And then what is going to be the outcome? The outcome, you are going to be defeated. But we need actually to rejoice from Christ. And that's why I'm saying, if we love him and rejoice in him, then we will receive from him all we need during the times of trial. If we love him and rejoice in him, then we will receive from him all we need during the time of trial. Guys, I don't have much. That's what I had today. May God bless you so much. May I ask you a question? Yes. It depends to how one confessed Christ. I may say, although they are being killed, we don't see that maybe Christianity is decreasing. But when you go to the coastal region, yes, it is decreasing. But other parts is increasing. Yeah, people are running away from the faith, so they cannot be persecuted. But the places where we come from. We are opening churches. We are doing evangelism. People are getting saved. Yeah. So I may say yes, and sometimes I may say no. <laughs> you have another question? Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. This is, this is to me, it is like my birthday because it's the first time I've taught a class. So it is my birthday. Thank you very much. May God bless you so much. <laughs>